now in paper back for the first time the title Bitter Music, which is a generous volume of writings by one of the 20th century's great musical icon class, Harry Parch, 1901-74. Bitter Music here, the collection is, it actually includes two journals kept by Parch, one while wandering the West Coast during the Depression and the other while hiking the rugged Northern California coastline. It also includes essays and discussions by Parch of his own compositions, as well as librettos and scenarios for six major narratives or dramatic compositions. Harry Parch adopted the pure intervals of just intonation and devised a 43 tone to the octave scale which in turn forced him into inventing numerous musical instruments. His compositions realize his ideal of a corporal music style that unites music, dance, and theater. Hello everyone, I'm Petra Vernon and this is Mostly Essays. Today we have a collection called Bitter Music, as I stated earlier, which is actually the collected journals and essays, as well as introductions and librettos by Harry Parch. The editor uh, is uh, Thomas McGarry, and it, this collection has been described as a splendid collection, a great step forward for parts, says Musical Times of Peter Dickinson. We also have from Percussive Notes, who says of Parch that it is said that Parch is the most innovative, iconoclastic, and genuinely American composer of our century, and Thomas McGarry, by his excellent editing, has allowed us to understand why these statements are so. This important book documents an often overlooked yet influential contributor to contributor to 20th century American musical life and deserves a wide audience's castle of notes. So today we'll have a look at an essay entitled WB Yeats, uh, written back in 1941. And this essay starts as, Many years ago, said William Butler Yeats, I received a letter from a man asking permission to use the Lake Isle of Ennis Free, which is a theme of which is a search for greater solitude as a setting for a song. And I granted permission. Sometime thereafter, I received another letter from the same man inviting me to be a, to, to a certain occasion to hear my poem, song by 300 assembled, Boy Scouts. Yeats was discussing one of his great passions and great disillusionments, the setting of his texts to music. I made it, to a, I made it a practice for some time after that to refuse everyone, said Yeats. Then later I decided that that was a mistake and granted permission without exception. And so throughout his life, Yeats looked in vain for music suitable to the ancient feeling of Irish legend, which he expressed so eminently in words. But musicians, knowing only one way to set words to music, in song or opera, had no air for his pleas. They saw music only as abstract form, whether words were used or not, as in German Lieder, and Yeats had no patience for this. There is something in the Irish soul that rejects abstraction, he said, looking for the exact opposite of the over-harmonized and complex symphony he went on. I'm inclined to sympathize with the remark by Harold Dotmish 
that modern musical instruments have followed the Darwinian law of the survival of the loudest. And also with that Irishman who, in his rebellion against abstraction and symphonic complexity, wrote all his music for drum, drum, and tin whistle. This was back in 1934, nearly five years previous to the great poet's death. I had asked his permission to set his version of Sophocles, King Oedipus, in its entirety, which he had promptly given, and I had taken to my viola to his house at Rathfarham on the outskirts of Dublin to give a demonstration of my work. I sensed guarded worry and disbelief. However, even when I went ahead with my exposition, chanting the words of the 137th Psalm to the tones of my viola, now in the flood of comment that followed my playing, the feeling of disbelief was entirely dispelled. Some six years before my meeting with Yeats, and after many years of dark groping, I had eventually come to his conclusions about music and musical instruments. Beginning with a single string, I had evolved a musical system much like the ancient Greeks with their monochords. My viola, with its long neck, was actually a glorified usage monochord, with the marks of 43 true musical ratios indicated on its fingerboard. My single instrument then became the basis for use of words after the ancient manner, and their inherent rhythm and tones preserved. It was all, all intuitive, all intuitive. I did not know that this was a system both of music and manner of creating music. That was the oldest in the world. And finally, I did not know that a famous Irish poet had given some of his best prose to enunciating the same theme. Yeats had been continually misunderstood on his attitude towards music, even by his Irish compatriots. The late George Russell, the famous A.E., poet friend of Yeats, said to me, when he was told that I was involved with Yeats in an interpretation of Oedipus, did you know that Yeats had no feeling for music, that he doesn't know one note from another, and that he can't carry a tune? <laughs> the columies the of such uh, observation, which are commonplace utterances, are manifold. No feeling for music? might mean several things, no feeling for the 18th century golden age of European music, for example, or no feeling for Japanese no, or no feeling for American jazz and swing, but no feeling for music as an idea is literally an impossibility in the human animal. And the inability to carry tune is more like hypersensitivity to tone. Such a person hears all the tones in the gamut instead of, uh, of the eight, seven or eight or twelve our musical fathers have insisted must be our limit. In answer to such critics, I like to quote Yeats' own words, I hear with older ears than the musician. Indeed, the oldest mu music of the human race in which the octave was an unlimited field of fancy and in which there are no bel canto mockery of words. We required, open quotation, a method of setting to music that will make it possible to sing or to speak in such a fashion that no word shall have an intonation or accentuation it could not have in passionate speech. 
it will be necessary to, to divide the lineaments of us still older arts and recreate the regulated declamations that died out when music fell into its earliest elaborations, Yeats wrote. Yeats wrote, quote, post quotations. During my 10 or so days in Dublin, I induced Yeats to assist me to to interpreting Oedipus and this was not easy because he was continually doubtful after years of attacks that he was not musical of his ability to help. He intoned the choruses though and I can still hear his reading of the line for death is all the fashion now till even death be dead. I made diagrams of his inflections but my memory of his vibrant tones is more accurate than my marks. Yates also invited Abbey Theatre actors to help me, and I had outlined my plans and the instruments I could I would use, which he tentatively approved. I had with me a model of my chromatic organ, one of my several instruments I felt I must complete to do justice to the setting. The console of the chromatic organ has 43 tones arranged much like a typewriter, and it is and it is designed on a pattern of the hand. Uh, on a chromatic scale of 43 tones in then and is then a simple five finger exercise over eight patterns which is possible with great manual ease but a council is only a model consequently i was forced to abandon all but the keyboard idea itself yates gave me letters of introductions in london among persons he thought might help and sympathize and spoke of a theater and chanters for an eventual performance, but Yeats was too early for me, and I, I was too late for Yeats. He had been through many illness, illnesses, and he had already given a long lifetime to beauty as he saw it, and he had not the vitality to plunge into the problem that had baffled him in earlier years. At the conclusion of my last visit to Riversdale, though he was not well, he insisted on accompanying me to, to the bus, which would take me back to Dublin. You are one of those few young men with ideas, the development of which is impossible to foretell, just as I was 30 years ago, he said. Then my bus came in sight around a turn and Yates stood directly in the middle of the road to bring it to a stop. We waved goodbye and in a very little while I was on my boat headed back for Liverpool. But in my mind, I still saw a large man in the middle of a road before an uncommon bus, his hands upraised, his huge figure physically blocking its passage. That was my final picture before I ever, because I never, ever saw Yates again. <laughs>